Well, if you would please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I, I wanted us to sing uh, The Church is One Foundation. It's one of my favorite songs written specifically about the church and our union with Christ, our relationship to God. And I wanted to do that because we've been learning a lot about the church during our pastoral epistle sermon series. We've been working through First and Second Timothy and Titus. And um, this sermon today is actually the last sermon through our pastoral epistles. So it took us um, close to nine months to work through these. And this will be the last one. And I'll have some uh, concluding thoughts at the end. Um, but I, I, we just learned so much about the church and, and other themes that uh, that song really blessed me. And, and it's weird. I, I feel sad moving on. It's, it's, I've really enjoyed it. I hope it's been a blessing for you. It's, it's like I'm reluctant to preach this almost. But what I think we're going to see as we finish uh, the, not only the book of Titus, but our entire sermon series through the pastoral epistles is that Paul ends in, in a very characteristic way that Paul ends by, you know, giving some final instructions and, and kind of wrapping things up and, you know, giving greetings from some of his friends. And, and just to, to be transparent, sometimes the very ends of epistles like this can be very difficult to preach because it's kind of just like a, you know, just a checklist of, by the way, so-and-so says hi, so-and-so says hi, make sure you do this, grace be with you, you know, and it's like, how, how do you preach that? Um, but thankfully, by God's grace, I, I do think that in, in our final chunk of the book of Titus, we are going to find Paul readdresses many of the themes that we have been discussing throughout the entire sermon series. Uh, so uh, my hope in prayer is that this sermon is extremely repetitive. My hope and prayer is that you will, after listening to this, go, how many times is he going to talk about that? that that's, a, that's a good thing. Because Paul hammers these themes all throughout these books, and I think he concludes with them as well. And so it is not my hope and joy that this will necessarily be new and fresh, but rather an important reminder of some of the important things about the church uh, in a, our relationship to one another that we have discussed in this series. So, uh, let's get to the text. Titus chapter th uh, 3, beginning in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We sort of began at, uh, in the middle of his argument from last week. So just a brief reminder, last week where we had ended up in verse 8, if you remember the sermon was about, uh, well not the sermon, the text, was about how we are to treat people the way God has treated us in Christ Jesus. Right? So Paul commanded us to show perfect courtesy towards all people, and we do that not because they necessarily deserve it or earn it, because that is what God has done to us. He was gracious to us when we were sinful, and so we are to be gracious to other people even when they are sinful. And then he transitions back to many of the things we've heard before, right? He, he begins in verse 9 by telling Titus to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. 
this is exactly what we saw in 1 Timothy, almost word for word. So it's interesting, although Titus and Timothy are not in the same region, um, geographically they are ministering in very different contexts, um, but apparently the false teachings against the church are pretty harmonious across the region because uh, you know, we, we've, we've already discussed that we don't quite know the precise nature of, of these particular disputes that Paul is addressing, but he uses the exact same words for Timothy. He tells Timothy to avoid genealogies, speculative genealogies, conversations about the law, and he tells the same thing for Titus. So Titus and Timothy are, are sort of uh, embracing, having to embrace the same attacks and distortions of the Christian faith. Um, somewhere along the lines, we know that in, in, in Jewish tradition, there's a great emphasis put on ancestry and genealogies. Um, we know that there was a lot of rabbinical teachings about the law that really went beyond the bounds of Scripture. So whatever the precise nature of these things are, Paul looked at what was happening and he told Titus the same thing he told Timothy. He says, these particular conversations aren't worth it at all. Just avoid them. And then he transitions on from that to an issue of, in verse 10, of uh, divisive people and how to handle them and how to dispel them and, and ignore them. He transitions then into verse 12 to some of his, uh, you know, as, as we said, final instructions and greetings. He, he, he says that he's going to send Artemis and Tychicus to you, uh, and then that Titus was to come and meet him in Acopolis. And this is important background information for, we talked when we began the book of Titus, in um, dating Titus and setting its context. Because if you recall, 2 Timothy ended very bleak. Well, spiritually it didn't end bleak, but circumstantially it ended very bleak because Paul was in prison and Paul was telling Timothy, please come to me before the winter. Please get here, bring my coat, bring my manuscripts and come to me before winter. Uh, it's getting cold and I don't know how much time I have left. But here we have Paul is, is clearly a free man, right? He's making, he's making preaching plans. Uh, you know, I'm going to go here in the winter. So this is one of the reasons why we know Titus was actually written before 2 Timothy. I know it comes after 2 Timothy chronologically in our Bible, but historically this was written before 2 Timothy. Paul here is not operating from prison. He's a free man. He's trying to make plans. And so this is why we see Titus was not the permanent teacher for, um, for Crete. Uh, we know from 2 Timothy, he eventually moved on to Dalmatia. We have Paul telling him here to meet me here. So Titus was sort of a temporary plan, and Paul's now sending sort of itinerant preachers um, to take his place, specifically in Ar Artemis or Tychicus. We don't know very much about those men other than that they were obviously Paul's trusted companions, and Paul trusted enough to put them in church authority. Um, and, and we see now it is possible that Paul was beginning some of his legal troubles, that they were sort of in, in his vision because he specifically not only asked for Apollos, who if you read through the book of Acts was a wonderful companion of Paul, uh, a brilliant debater of the Jews, uh, but he also asked for Zenos the lawyer. Uh, and again, this is another person we don't know much about. Uh, it could be possible that he, the, the term lawyer was what uh, any Jewish uh, expert on the Mosaic law would have been called. Uh, so, so sometimes the word lawyer doesn't necessarily mean, doesn't carry with it the connotations that we have with that term. Um, so he could have been just a law expert in the Mosaic law. But because his name is Zenos, he was probably a Greek man. And because he was Greek, he was most likely the kind of lawyer that you would probably think of when you hear that term. Um, and so whether Paul was saying, bring the lawyer to me because I need legal help, 
Or whether he was just saying, Zenos is a pot, maybe they know another Zenos, bring the Zenos that is the lawyer. We don't know. So he, he may have had some difficulties that he's foreseeing, but we're not sure. But, but overall, Paul is writing as a free man. He writes, he concludes this letter by uh, making plans and, and, and telling Titus and his church what to do, and we'll go through and break all this stuff down. And then in verse 15 is his classic greetings. We send greetings to you. Grace be with you. That's a summary of the text, and here's what I want us to do. I think I've found four different themes that we have already discussed throughout the pastoral epistles, four different themes that Paul has reiterated in this text for us, and these will kind of serve as our four final reminders of really uh, what the pastoral epistles, in a certain sense, are all about. These are important themes to leave us with as we exit out of these books. And the first one we see is this uh, important issue of edification. When Paul thinks of a healthy local church, he thinks of a church that's constantly being edified. Everything we do, we want it to be profitable. We want it to be for our spiritual good. We want to always have a forward lean and a forward trajectory. We don't want things to prevent us or cause us to stumble in our spiritual growth. And I say that because look at verse 9. He tells Titus, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. And if we stop there for a moment, we, I've said this before because he's given this command a couple times before. This is not, as some people are prone to say, an argument on Paul's end to avoid all discussion, to avoid all debate, to avoid any kind of theological uh, fight. And we know this because the very author of this letter was an expert in theological fighting. Right? You read through the book of Acts, read Acts 17 just for one example. Paul was not afraid to debate people about the scriptures, to reason with the Greek philosophers, to reason with the Jews. Paul had no quarrels, no qualms about opening up his Bible and showing people the truth and refuting their error. And we see in other places in Scripture, like in, in, in the epistle of Jude, we are commanded to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There is a time and a place for contention. There is a time and a place for a fight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we demolish arguments. We demolish spiritual strongholds that are set up against the knowledge of God. The Christian religion is a religion of tearing down arguments, tearing down false worldviews. So all throughout Scripture, we have this clear command to contend for the faith, to demolish arguments. Christians are supposed to do these things. But obviously, in Paul's mind, what he's saying here is what that doesn't mean is that every fight that prevents itself is a fight worth having. There are some issues, there are some fights that are simply not worth it. And, and I can speak from personal experience. I think that this is especially relevant in the day of social media. We are, fighting is available to us at a rate it never was before. And, and, and I can confess to you, this was one of the hardest and first lessons I had to learn as a young minister. I, especially one without seminary training, I always felt very self-conscious. And so I thought, here's how I prove sort of my academic worth. I go onto Facebook and I let the whole world see how much I know. And I took every fight. I was picking fights. It was all the time. And I was even boastful about it. And it took years of working with older men to, to speak into my life for me to see that looking back on it, that wasn't so much a sign of, 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 of proving myself. If anything, it was a sign of how unworthy I am. Because not all fights are worth it, especially on the internet. 
Not every fight is worth it. And, and, and here's, Paul doesn't give us incredibly specific details for how to discern that, but he gives us a broad principle. Why is it that Paul told, tells Timothy, the same Paul who reasoned about the scriptures, who reasoned about the law, who debated the Greek philosophers, that same Paul is saying, avoid these conversations going on. And what's his criteria? What's his standard? Well, because these ones are what? At the end of verse 9, unprofitable and worthless. You see, when Paul engaged in a fight, it was strategic. He believed that this particular conversation needs to happen. This will be profitable for the saints. This will build up the body. This will educate people. This will help people. But Paul said, if, if a debate arises or if an issue arises where you're just speculating and talking... And there's really nothing substantial. There's no profit to this. There's nothing helpful here. Then it's a waste of your time. Why? Because Paul is obsessed with edification. He doesn't want us just to, to dabble in the hobby of theology. He doesn't want theology to be a pastime. No, we've seen throughout the pastoral epistles that theology is a means to an end. It's means to an end of knowing God deeper and becoming more holy, becoming more like Christ. And there are some conversations that actually distract us from that. And so it needs to be our prayer, both as individuals and as a church, that the Spirit would help us have exercise great discernment and knowing what hills to die on and what battles to take, but we need to always remember that there are some conversations, there are some debates, there are some issues that just quite frankly aren't worth it. Let the world quabble over those issues. We want to remain with what is profitable, what is helpful, what will build up the saints. Paul wants churches to be constantly edified. This is a reminder that we are always on a path of growth. There's, the Christian, Christianity is not something you ever graduate from, get a degree from, or retire from. You never finally get to that top Christian tier, and now you can play golf and hope that your peers make it up with you. No, we are, as long as there's breath in your lungs, we are on a constant state of growth. I want to know God more today than I did yesterday. I want to be holier today than I was yesterday. And this should be really encouraging. We need to talk about this a lot because the last thing we want is for new converts to feel intimidated. Because that makes sense. I mean, imagine walking into a Christian church. You didn't grow up in a Christian home. You come into a Christian church. You come to know the Lord. And you're now interacting with people who have been walking with God for 40, 50, 60 years. It can be intimidating. I don't know as much as they do. I don't make this, they don't make the mistakes that I make. That can be really discouraging, intimidating, and so we need to be reminded that it's not as if they've made it and you haven't. No matter where we're at, we want to move forward. Everyone is in a constant state of humble submission to God's word, learning, training, growing. I don't know everything, you don't know everything. I don't live perfectly, you don't live perfectly. So no matter where you are in your Christian faith, we can all jump into the same boat and say we're trying to move forward together. Paul is obsessed with the constant edification of the church, always pursuing that which is profitable and helpful and ignoring that which is unprofitable and worthless. Paul cares about edification. But we see this is slightly related, but it is uh, different, that Paul, so, Paul is also concerned not only with the church's edification, but with the church's unity, Paul wants us to be edified together, but he wants us to be unified together. And that's why he says in verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
So Paul moves from this issue of avoid worthless debates to avoid divisive people. He says that if there are divisive people, Paul shows an amazing amount of grace, an amazing amount of restraint, right? He, He goes here for two warnings. So someone causes division in the church, we don't just kick them out. If an unbeliever is causing divisions in our area, we don't just forget them and never discuss them, never go after them. You see, because I'll be honest with you, this is somewhat of a difficult text to know exactly what's going on. Um, It it sounds like some kind of church discipline, um, but the reason I struggle with that is because the, the guidelines that Jesus laid out in Matthew 18 add an additional step, right? Paul here gives two warnings, um, but it, Jesus is you ultimately get three, right? There's the offended, the elders, and the church. I didn't think maybe even be four in there. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure if Paul is just kind of giving a general overview of church discipline, the idea that people deserve more than one warning, but eventually there is a time when it's time to part ways. Or if maybe he's specifically talking about not divisive people within the church, but divisive people without the church, because the context of these books make clear that there are outside voices speaking into the life of the Christian body. But either way, kind of however you go with it, the overall principle we all share on, and that is Paul says that when people are causing division, they deserve grace. We want to work through this. We want to try to find a solution to this. But there are some people who, quite frankly, are not interested in reconciliation. There are some people who, quite frankly, just will not get along with the church. That's, that's why Paul says specifically, he, he says in verse 10, they are almost doing this intentionally. They are stirring up division. And that's why he said in verse 11, when you do finally part ways, that justifies this person as warped and sinful and his own behavior condemns himself. In other words, by not listening to the church, by not listening to the people of God, by not valuing unity over disunity, this person has proved the character of his heart. He is, condemns himself And so the overall principle here is that sometimes division is the least divisive thing we can do. Division can actually be a bring us to unity. There are some people we have to divide from. There are some people we have to turn from for the overall sake of the unity of the church. There are some people that just don't belong in churches. And and this principle can be shared. This goes from the extreme case that Paul is talking about. Paul here is talking about sinful people who are intentionally stirring up division. But, but in, on a lighter note, this is the reason why we have denominations, right? Sometimes we have people who are not sinful people purposefully trying to stir up division, but our, our theological differences are just so great that we ultimately become a stumbling block to one another. And this is why that as long as the Lord tarries, denominations are not as bad as some people make them out to be because it allows local churches to pursue unity without constant disruption, constant battles, constant fighting. And so we see an overall principle here that this is why, for example, churches tend to take things like membership and church discipline so, and make it so important. It matters who we welcome into the body. We, we, want, we want to know before we become family members with one another that it, do we know enough about this person to know that they're not just here to cause division, that they're not just here for themselves. We want to know that. And, and if people do cause division, and if they are not willing to repent and not willing to, to coordinate with the body, then at some point there needs to be a time when we part ways. This membership and in, in, in church excommunication, it's really easy for the world to paint these things as, 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 as authoritarian, cruel treatment of people. 
But this concept of the unity of the church mattering to Paul, this, this, this is not a cruel authoritarian issue. This, is, this matters. That churches would be unified together, that we are not having to put out fires constantly. And I just want to, you know, also say this. I think this is why, you know, I haven't been doing ministry, relatively speaking, that long. Uh, but I can tell you that even in the short time I have done ministry, you would be amazed. And I'm not excluding myself from this. You would be amazed at how in, in local church settings, the smallest, most petty things can become so divisive. It's unbelievable. And you talk to any minister who's been doing it much longer than me, you will be amazed at some of the issues that have broken churches up. It's usually not over things like the deity of Christ. It's usually over things like the color of the carpet. Or there's not enough guitars. Or you only do modern hymns, you don't do enough of the old hymns. Or you do too many of the old hymns, you don't do enough of the modern hymns. Now, I'm not even saying music isn't important. I'm not saying church aesthetics aren't important. But you, you, quite frankly, you would simply be amazed at the things that will disrupt the life of the church. And, and I think all of us who are being humble, we might be amazed at the things we will let disrupt us and be disruptive in the life of the church. Like I said, none of us are excluded from this. I, I want us to know that, uh, that our, uh, our theological accuracy does not protect us from pettiness. Uh, it's, it's really easy, I think, sometimes, you know, for me in my own sinfulness, when I, I, I look at the state of the evangelical world and I'm just so discouraged by what I'm seeing in local churches and I'm so discouraged by the places I'm going, where sometimes, without even knowing it, I kind of put myself on this pedestal like they're worldly and they're carnal and they're doing all this stuff wrong and I forget that I have the same potential to be a problem to this church as anybody in any other church. Right? The, the fact that I think I'm more theologically accurate than these churches and the fact that I think that we're doing things more biblical than these churches does not mean that I am not prone to pettiness. You'd be amazed, at, no matter the church, no matter the church size, no matter the denomination, at the end of the day, we're people. And we all have this temptation to be divisive, especially over small things. And I think it makes sense, you know, I, I had the privilege yesterday of, um, I, I traveled down to Hobbs, there was a seminary, seminary professor from Midwestern who came in to do some teaching, and, and it was free, so I got to go and um, do an all-day training. It was, it was really helpful, and I really appreciated it, I learned a lot. I mean, one of the things he mentioned, and we don't have time to get into the biblical background for all of this, but I do believe it's true, that local church Sunday morning worship is spiritual warfare, like every time we gather as the saints, we, we are declaring war against Satan and his legions. That, that every sermon we preach, every call and response that we recite, every song we sing is us marching on the gates of Hades and smashing the doors open. And, and I firmly believe that. I think you see that, especially throughout the Psalms. I think you can make a case for that. And so because of that, it makes sense to me that of all the things on God's green earth that Satan is particularly interested in disrupting, it's local church worship. I think local church worship is, is, is one of the things Satan fears more than anything on the face of the earth. And so it makes sense that he would be particularly active in disrupting us on Sundays, disrupting our time together. And I, that's why, it, I, that's the only reason I can come up with for how often small things become huge things. 
And so I, I think that verse 10 and 11 is, 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 there's a general principle here about church discipline and excommunication, but I think there's an even smaller, more intimate reminder here to, to check my own heart. Do I care more about the unity of the church and the coordination of the church, or is it all about me and my preferences? Am I going to stir up division whenever I don't get my way, or am I willing to sacrificially serve the members of my church and lay down some of my things? And just, I, I, I don't have any thing in mind. I don't have any person in mind. I, things, have, in my opinion, have run amazingly smooth since June. <laughs> I, I just love this church, and I love this church context. But I just know I've seen it happen. Even the happiest of churches, the smallest thing can go wrong, and it becomes a big thing. So may we guard ourselves from division. Paul cares about edification. He cares about division. But then he moves to another important theme that we've seen, especially in the last few sermons, which is this issue of good works, right? Look at in verses 12 through 13 with me. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we have it explicitly, let our people learn, verse 14, to devote themselves to good works. Devoting ourselves to good works. We saw in, in, in two sermons ago, we saw this in the beginning of Titus chapter 3, that Jesus died, or forgive me, the end of Titus chapter 2, that Jesus actually died. One of his purposes in dying for us and giving himself up for us, as chapter 2 uh, verse 14 says, is to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died for us to make us people who care about godliness. And then we saw, even last week, the same theme, that we are to show perfect courtesy to those in authority, to all people, because of what God has done for us. So the last two weeks, we've hit this issue of good works, and Paul comes back to it again. This constant theme throughout the pastoral epistles, a call to godliness, a call to good works. We are reminded yet again that the local church, edification matters, unity matters, but holiness matters too. That our theology is doing something. We're not just learning, learning, and learning, but never being changed, never being transformed. And in the last two weeks, we've looked at the rightful place of the gospel in this. We've reminded ourselves that Paul is very clear that our good works are not meriting salvation. Our good works are not earning our justification before God, but are rather a response to those things. God saved us. Jesus laid his life down for us. He has made sinners right, and that becomes the fuel in the tank of holiness, that is what drives us now to be holy. And Paul reminds us yet again how important it is for Christian churches to dedicate themselves to good works. It, it, this one's kind of interesting, though, because here he's really specifically focusing on how we treat one another. And by one another, I don't just mean Redeemer Christian Fellowship. I mean Christians. Right, because the specific context here, although he, he calls them to general good works, right? If you devote yourself to good works, that means he's not just limiting it to this one-time thing, right? De devotion means this is constant lifestyle. We wake up every day, how can I be good today? How can I obey God today? How can I shine the light of Christ in my world today? 
So this is something we are constantly devoted to, but, but he's very specific to say, I am, whether, whether uh, Zenos and Apollos are already with Titus, we don't know, but at, at some point in time, they were expected to be there. And Paul says that you make sure to send them off and you make sure, you and the church make sure that they lack nothing. You sacrifice your time to show hospitality. You sacrifice your comfort to show hospitality. You maybe even sacrifice your resources and your money to take care of these brothers. Why? Because they're brothers. We are called to show not only good works as we saw last week to all people, but intensely to make sure that those in the household of faith are taken care of. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are reminded that in our good works, we have a unique relationship to believers. We have a unique responsibility to believers. And this should be a beautiful thing for us. To to be reminded subtly in this text that the bonds of Christ are stronger than any earthly bonds you can think of. Your familial bonds, any other, your work relationships. You know, we, we find ourselves in all different kinds of situations that draw us close together. You have family members that I'm sure you love dearly and care about. If you've ever met someone who's served in the Marines or served in, in, in the military, they, they will oftentimes, war can bring men together in ways that it's, 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 it's hard to replicate. Even on sports teams, right, this, these things bring us together. This is why we have gangs, right? It's, 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 I'm not advocating for them. But, I mean, there's a sense of community there, that these people die for each other. They, they care for each other, right? We, we find these different ways to connect with people and, and to have a bond with people. And scripturally, we see all throughout the New Testament that the strongest bond we have is not familial blood, but messianic blood. The blood of Christ connects us with people in ways that nothing else should. That's why these people, I, I don't know if they've met Zenos and Apollos, but the text doesn't tell us. It tells us it doesn't matter if they've met them or not. They're brothers. Take care of them. Love them. Help them. They're members of the household of faith. So he calls them to devote themselves to good works, to take care of these brothers simply because they're brothers. Isn't it a wonderful thing? You could learn about someone and never even meet them. But if you know that they're believers, you love them right away. It just amazes me. For example, I think of this all the time, like when, when my heart breaks and grieves over the persecuted church, there's, you see, there's two aspects of that. I, I, don't, I don't enjoy seeing any people group be persecuted and murdered, so that always makes me sad, right? I, you know, the, the Holocaust was horrific. It grieves me. They, they weren't believers, but that doesn't make it okay. So anytime a, a people group is, is persecuted, it grieves me, but there's always an additional level when I know that these are brothers and sisters in Christ being killed for their faith. And that's because I have a unique relationship to these people. I don't know what they look like. I don't know who they are. I don't know their names. But I know enough about them to be deeply in love with them. And that's what the bonds of Christ does. You know, I I don't mean to call our guests out, but I I received an email this week that we were going to have visitors this week. Never met these people, and I was excited to have them. Why was I excited? I don't know them. Because they love the Lord. That should draw us together. And that should help us with division. This is, this is someone Jesus bought. This is someone Jesus purchased his blood with. 
That should change the way I think about them, change the way I relate to them. And we, but we, there's also something really subtle I see before we move on here. And I want to be careful not to make a mountain out of a molehill, but he, 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 he says to let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, specifically so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. There, there is, the Greek here is a little difficult to translate. If, if you're not reading from an ESV, it might say something different there. But generally speaking, what, what most commentators, what most translators see is that Paul is specifically saying that especially in times of urgency, which I imagine that's assuming what Zenos and Paulus have found themselves in, Christians need to be doubly prepared for those specific and unique opportunities to help. And here's what that tells us. Us, that sometimes good works are calculated. Um, sometimes, we, in other words, we don't turn our brains off when it comes to good works. And here's what I mean by that. I think especially as it relates to our finances, you can be smart and wise with your financial giving in a way that actually promotes good works rather than limits you from them. Let me just give one practical example because I think it will help. Our church has a specific fund that we use only for emergencies. And I think that that is similar to what's going on here, like that we are prepared to help, especially in times of urgent needs. I think this is godly and good. Now, a, a super zealous person might come along and say, look, you've got a big stack of money sitting in the bank doing nothing. Couldn't you just take all that money and go give it to a homeless shelter right now? How many people could you help by just dumping that money on someone right now? Get rid of it. Donate it. Give it to somebody. Help somebody. And that would look pious. That would look religious. But I think there's a principle here as we devote ourselves to good work to be calculative about this, to be wise about this. I think that having this kind of an emergency fund can actually make our good works increase. Good works are not always just impulsive reactions to our emotions, but sometimes we're smart about it and we're wise about it. We see this principle, the, the famous text as Paul writes to Corinth, when he writes to them about giving, this is one of the famous texts about, you know, when we debate tithing in the New Testament and Paul commands the churches to, to take up a tithe, but he does that in order to help the churches in Jerusalem that are being persecuted. So Paul here is saying, let's be smart about this. We're going to take some time. We're going to save. We're going to collect. We're going to gather. We'll distribute. Especially with our resources, there are ways of devoting yourselves to good works that's not impulsive, but rather wise and prudent. And I'm sure that applies to more things than just finances. And like I said, I don't want to make too much of that, but I just think it's interesting he specifically is talking about you need to be ready to help people, especially in emergencies. So that means we're calculative so that we're, when we get, because you don't plan for emergencies. They just happen, right? They just got a letter one day and all of a sudden they found out, oh, a couple of guys are coming. We need to be ready to host them and to send them and provide for their needs. Christians are wise. They're prudent. But... The overall principle here is we are to devote ourselves to good works. We are to live godly lives. And this brings us to our last point. So we talked about the theme of edification. We talked about the theme of church unity. We talked about the theme of godliness, good works, and holiness. In this last point, you could almost, I consider it the fourth point, but you could really consider this maybe the big point that all the others fall under or the foundation of the other. But here's the last thing that I want to leave us with in the book of Titus. This is this theme of love. We devote ourselves to good works, especially those of the household of faith. We desire unity and not division. We edify each other. Why? Because we love each other. 
I don't care how cheesy it sounds. I don't care how hallmarky it sounds. Christian faith is devoted to love. First John tells us that the way we prove our faith to the world is by how we love one another. And we see love all throughout this text, right? It's, 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 it's made, you know, explicit. In verse 15, all who are with, uh, with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. But as, as Paul ends so many of his epistles, we just have this beautiful little peek into early church history. And we see this amazing interconnectedness of people who don't have Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn. They don't have any of these social media platforms. And yet we have this amazing interconnectedness. We see this historically in the way they were able to, to copy biblical manuscripts and pass them on and deliver funds and help. I mean, the churches were, 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 were integrated in an amazing way. They were in communication and connection with each other across the region in ways that I'm just glad that I wasn't the one overseeing that because I think it would have fallen apart. I mean, they were just incredible. But we see above all that they have a spiritual connectedness. That almost every time Paul ends his letter, he says, by the way, all the brothers and sisters that are with me, they love you and they say hi. And I know you've got some brothers and sisters with you. Tell them that I say hello. Tell them that we said hi. I mean, that's how almost all of his letters ends just like this. All who are in the faith and love, greet them. Grace be with all of you. I'm sending this such and such your way. Make sure to take care of them. I, I, we just see this, this, this presupposition of the text, which is that Christians love each other, that Paul loves these people, and that these people love Paul. The love of God's people is of foremost, and foremost important to any local church. We, we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's the, the famous passage in the spiritual gifts. You know, there's the, the verse that everyone reads at every wedding. But pa Paul, Paul makes love the, the highest of Christian virtues. He says, I don't care if you speak the tongues of angels. I don't care how many good works you're doing. I don't care if you've been persecuted and burned at the stake for your faith. If you have not love, you have nothing. You can be the most brilliant theologian in all of New Mexico, but if you don't love God's people, that's worthless to us. You can care about unity and edification, but if you're not doing it because you genuinely love God's people, then it's worthless to us. We are to be united together in love for one another. That's why so many things come to mind that I won't go down too many rabbit trails here, but you know, that's why it's important that we meet together. It's important that we're here. We can love people we don't know, but this kind of interconnected unity, we, we need to be here. We need to come to church together. And, and I know that in 21st century America, it is difficult to spend time with one another outside of Sundays. I, I don't pretend that I've done that to such a level that everyone needs to be modeling me, but I would encourage us as much as we can to spend time with one another, to stay for potlucks, to spend time during the week as best we can. We, we want to be with each other and, and love each other and know each other. And that's why, you know, I, I just, I have very little patience for oftentimes, you know, for people, for this, thankfully, it's not as prevalent as it was when I was a kid, but this mindset of, I can be a Christian without the church. Uh, you know, I, I can love God, I don't need to go to church, I don't need to be part of a body, I don't need to go, I don't even have a specific verse to disprove that, I just have the whole New Testament. The whole presupposition of the New Testament is people who love each other, gathering together and hearing these instructions. 
There's not even a specific verse. It just permeates every book of the New Testament that God's people are together and they're sacrificing for each other and they're taking care of each other and they're praying for one another and they're meeting together to worship and they're meeting together to break bread. Most of the letters, uh, most of the New Testament epistles are written to churches. This was how people got the word of God, how they heard from the apostles. The church is described as the bride of Christ. And I ask any person in here, how easy would it be for you to be friends with someone who hates your spouse? I'll be friends with you, but please don't bring your wife around me. I really don't want to spend time with her. I love you, but I don't like your spouse. That's what I hear when people say, you know, I love Jesus. I just don't like his church. Gandhi, you hear what Gandhi said? Gandhi loved Jesus. He just didn't like Christians. Well, that means Jesus didn't like him. Because Jesus loves those Christians. Jesus died for those Christians. Jesus is in perfect union with those Christians, washing them by the word, giving himself up, interceding for them. Jesus is not impressed or happy when people talk about the church is filled with hypocrites, but I'll love Jesus. Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He loves you. And he's not okay with other people thinking they can love him, but despising you. Jesus loves the church. He loves the bride of Christ. And it's my goal. This is not to say that I never make mistakes, you never make, that churches don't make mistakes. There's, there's obviously times and places where we have to criticize ourselves and criticize the church. We want to always be reforming and changing. That doesn't mean that we're faultless. But generally speaking, there is no, the, the New Testament churchless Christian does not exist. It doesn't exist. The New Testament is a church book written by churchy people for churchy people. Because we love each other. Because as we sang, Christ is our one foundation. He is the Lord of the church, the shepherd of the church. He is the bridegroom to the church. We love each other because of our union together in Christ. And so let me just briefly close. I I went a little longer than I was hoping to. Um, I just want to remind us of some of the important things that we've seen in, in, in the pastoral epistles. Uh, we, all of the things we discussed today, edification, unity, good works, and love, these things um, are extremely important. We, we've seen a lot, uh, just as by way of reminder, of issues of what we call ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, how the church is structured, how the church is to be ordered, and the authority within the church. We've seen a lot of scripture about the need to devote ourselves to good works, to be godly people, to be holy people. We've seen about the interconnectedness of Christians, our love for the saints, Paul's love for the saints. We've seen so many wonderful things. And so it is my hope that this series blessed you in some way. Not me, not my preaching, but the text of God that as we opened up and we read through 1 Timothy and we read through 2 Timothy, we read through Titus, we saw uh, the way Paul so valiantly and bravely endured persecution. The way Paul maintained his hope up until the end. The way Paul was obsessed with learning and studying and blessing the Christian people even while he was in prison, awaiting his death. We see a disordered, functionless church in Crete that Titus was commissioned to establish and to appoint elders to establish. We see the heroic efforts of early church Christians to get the church running. Every person in this room today, everyone, our gathered meeting today, we are ultimately in the debt to first century Christians we don't even know. Because of their faithfulness 
and their courage to keep the church of God going. Even after the apostles are all murdered, Jesus has ascended, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see the Christian church growing and spreading, facing persecution head on, and still the church grows. And I would encourage you that what we have seen, I think, if we would just obey God's word and put to practice the things about the church that we have seen in the pastoral epistles, we can have great hope that the church of God is going to continue to overcome in this world. That we don't have to be afraid of what's coming. We don't have to be afraid of cultural changes. We don't have to be afraid of global movement. Rome was bad. The church got through. They've pressed through. They've made it on by the grace of God. So I would encourage you to love Christians to love the local church, to pursue godliness, to finish the race well, and to maintain a great hope for the future of the Christian faith. God has not abandoned us in the past when times were hard. He will not abandon us now. He is faithful to his church. He loves his bride. So take great hope and great courage. Do not be discouraged by the news. Do not be discouraged by the things that you're seeing. Remember that God has overcome great obstacles. Be a hopeful Christian, be a loving Christian, be a faithful Christian.